Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, Take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth, These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. 
And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. This is the word of the Lord. The early church fathers of the fourth, fifth, or so centuries um, are very famous in church historical circles, that is, for a lot of things. But one of the things that they are most famous for is how well they, as a group of Christians, faced suffering and persecution, and in some cases, even death. Um, A historian named Ronald Rittgers has written a book called The Reformation of Suffering. It's a very good book, a magisterial book. And at one point in that book, he says this about early Christians. Those Christians used suffering to argue for the superiority of their creed, their belief system, because they suffered better than pagans, that is, those who were not Christians. So the early church, through their suffering, Ritger says, and this is verified in many historical sources, made Christianity beautiful and believable for others. And so the question I want to start with this morning for you is, how well are you prepared to face suffering? Or maybe if you're going through suffering now, how are you facing it now? You know, our culture today, according to many, handles suffering and death worse than any culture in the history of the world. But the fact is, I hate to be the one to break this news to you if this is news, we are all going to face suffering. The question is not if, the question is when. And so one question that all belief systems, that all religions, that all faiths have to answer is, What purpose does suffering have in each of our lives? And also, how can we move through it? And I think, believe it or not, that this passage from Revelation helps us see the Christian answer to that question. And what we see here is that the suffering that we face and undergo for Jesus' sake is actually one of the ways that we bear witness to his kingdom and to his gospel. So we're going to talk about that this morning, but really briefly, let me catch you up. If you haven't been with us as we're moving through Revelation, let me just remind you of the three big interpretive principles that we've covered most weeks. First, this is symbolic literature. It's by far the most symbolic book in the Bible. We don't know what all the symbols mean. There's a lot of debate about most of them, but it is without question symbolic, and so it should be read that way. That's first. Second, Most of Revelation refers not just to some future era right before Jesus returns a second time. No, most of Revelation refers to the entire period between the first and second coming of Jesus, or what we can call the church age, the church age. That is our age. And the third principle is the one that we began to look at last week, and I called it recapitulation. That is, Revelation is to be read as a series of cycles, not necessarily in a strict chronological order. Okay, so keep those in mind as we continue to work our way through. Last week in chapters 8 and 9, we looked at the first six trumpets. And we saw that the trumpets were symbols. 
and they symbolically represent God's judgment upon false worship or what we called idolatry. The trumpets we saw are calls for each one of us to repent, to turn away from false gods that will never satisfy, and to center our lives around Jesus Christ, the lion and the lamb who rules the world. And so today we get to the seventh trumpet. You heard me read it at the end of chapter 11. The seventh trumpet represents the second coming of Jesus. But in between the end of chapter 9 and the seventh trumpet, we see an interlude. That's most of chap- all of chapter 10 and most of chapter 11. Now, if you remember a few weeks ago, chapter 7 was also an interlude between the sixth seal and the seventh seal. Chapters 10 and most of 11 are a second interlude in the second cycle between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. And what these chapters are doing is looking from a different perspective at the same period of time that the six trumpets covered. Or to put it simply, at our time. This is a chapter largely about our age and our age as it moves towards its conclusion with the second coming of Jesus Christ. And the question of these interlude chapters is this question. During this time where the six trumpets are sounding and God is bringing judgment upon false worship, what are Jesus' disciples supposed to be doing? What are we all about? And we get a clear answer from this part of the scripture. Now, we're not going to dive into all of the interpretive principles and details of this text. It would take three hours. And I don't want, I love you, but I'm not going to put you through that. If you're interested in some of the details, come talk to me. I'll give you some great resources that you can read. We're going to take a bit of an overview perspective this morning. We've got to talk about some of this stuff, but there's no way we can cover all this. And by the way, in Revelation, it's really easy to lose the forest for the trees. And oftentimes people get so focused on what that means or what that means that they miss the whole point of the passage. So we're going to endeavor to not do that this morning as we look at these chapters. So with that in mind, let me give you the main idea of these two interlude chapters and the seventh trumpet. Here it is. God's people are called to bear an empowered witness to him in the world. That's what we're supposed to do. God's people are called to bear an empowered witness to him in the world. Okay? And there's two ways that these chapters describe the witness we are to bear. We bear witness by speaking first, and then second, we bear witness by suffering. Speaking and suffering. Chapter 10 is about speaking, chapter 11 is about suffering. So let's look at those two chapters then as we move ahead. First, chapter 10 tells us that we bear witness to God's kingdom by speaking. Now, this is an interlude, as I just mentioned, and it's also a transitional chapter in the span of the whole book. It's taking us from the first half of Revelation to the second half of Revelation. And the reason we know that is because mainly what's going on here is that John, the man who is seeing these visions given to him by God and who wrote them down in this book, is being recommissioned here by God to continue to prophesy to continue to write down what he sees. He's called to keep speaking, as we see in verse 11, about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So if you'll just briefly look at the passage with me, you'll see in verse 1, another mighty angel, that's the word we see there, comes down from heaven. Now this is, by the way, probably Jesus. 
Jesus in other parts of the Bible is referred to as an angel. Angel just means messenger. So here Jesus is acting as a messenger. The reason it's probably Jesus is because of the way he's described. He's described as having a rainbow. His face is like the sun. That reminds us of Jesus in chapter 1 of Revelation. And we see mentioned multiple times this idea that he has one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. Remember hearing that? That's an image for sovereignty. It's an image for power. It's an image for this person having authority over all of the world, both land and sea. So this is probably Jesus coming to John, and he gives him in verse 2 a little scroll that is open in his hand and strangely asks John to eat it. (laughs) Obviously symbolic, right? We're not going to, well, I guess you probably could eat a scroll, but this is not literal. This is symbolic, okay? Um, The little scroll is similar in its meaning to the scroll we saw Jesus open back in chapter 5 that he unsealed. The scroll is a symbol referring to God's plan for history. So what's going on here? Jesus is recommissioning John. He's telling John again to continue to speak, to continue to prophesy, to continue to proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God to preach repentance and faith for the judgment of the world is coming. Now, this idea of eating the scroll is not something John made up. You should have that clear by now if you've been around for a few weeks. It actually instead comes from the Old Testament. If you read the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, he was one of the major prophets. You'll see in Ezekiel chapters 2 and 3 that when Ezekiel in ancient Israel is being commissioned to prophesy the word of the Lord to the people of Israel, the same exact symbol is given. God gives to Ezekiel a scroll and asks him to eat it, and we see both bitterness language and sweetness language in Ezekiel's eating of the scroll. So that's what John is doing. He's using these Old Testament categories, these Old Testament images, and remixing them recycling them for his purposes. And so John, eating this scroll given to him by Jesus, is a big symbol of God saying, John, keep doing what you're doing. Continue to prophesy. Continue to preach. It's going to be both bitter for you and sweet for you. What that means is that in the preaching of the gospel, there is both a message of judgment, bitterness, and a message of grace, sweetness. Now, interestingly... John has to ingest, right, if we follow the symbolism. He has to ingest the word of God so that it will become a part of him, so to speak, so that he will know it and learn it and then speak it. He has to to take it in and then spread it out. That's the idea behind the metaphor. So to summarize, verse chapter 10, God calls John to continue to bear witness to his plan for the world by proclaiming God's word. Now, that is relevant for you today because it is clear from this text that the church, people who are followers of Jesus, gathered together and also individually, have the same function now that John did then. That is to say, the church has a prophetic ministry. Now, when I use the word prophetic, I don't mean some weird telling of the future, you know, strange sort of idea. I mean prophetic in the sense that the church is called to speak truth to power. 
I mean prophetic in the sense that the church is called to proclaim the kingdom of God that Jesus is bringing in the middle of a world that is often going to be hostile to us and to our message. So the role of the church, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, your role is to bear witness to who God is and to what God has done in Christ by speaking about it. Now, I want you to listen to me. That is not just my role. That is not just the role of professional Christians. It's not just the role of foreign missionaries. That is your role. It is the role of all who have professed faith and are following Jesus. Your role, until Jesus comes back, in part, is to bear witness, to be a light in the darkness, to use another image that the New Testament talks about. Remember, by the way, the church in Revelation 2 and 3, the seven churches are called lampstands. We are functioning as a lampstand, as a light in a dark world when we are speaking prophetically the truth of the gospel to the world. That's what chapter 10 is about. We bear witness by speaking. So very practically, it is important for you If you're a Christian, and you know what? Even if you're not a Christian and you want to understand more about Christianity, this is still important. It's important for you to know your Bible. Um, In fact, I think it's fair to say that you actually cannot bear witness without knowing and reading your Bible, like John was called to do here. So so to just get into the nitty-gritty for a second with you, you need, and I talked to the high schoolers about this uh, in Christian education, all of you need a plan for reading and taking in the scripture. Now, in our modern day, technology has a lot of curses, but it also has a lot of blessings. On this phone, you can download any number of really good Bible reading plans. And you know what else you can do? You can set up a prompt so that you're reminded, not of when the Spurs won another game, although you can get that too. You can also get reminded, hey, in 10 minutes, it's time to do your reading. And so I would strongly encourage you that if you want to get serious or more serious about following Jesus, and this isn't something that you've done, to just take 15 minutes this afternoon, find a good Bible reading plan, and start doing it. Start developing that habit, because that habit is going to form you. Go to esvbible.org. They have a lot of really good plans. I've used multiple ones, and they're all very, very helpful. But you need to get to know your Bible. You should attend our Christian education classes. You should attend a men's or a women's Bible study. Dan and Lisa are leading those. They're both very good Bible teachers. That would be a great thing for you to attend, to begin to ingest, to take in God's word so that you know how to bear witness, so that you know what you're supposed to be bearing witness about. Get a few friends together and study a book with a good practical commentary, perhaps. If you want to have suggestions, Trust me, I love giving book recommendations for people that probably aren't going to read them. But I love book recommendations. Come talk to me. We're happy to help you with that. And if you're not a Christian and you have any interest at all in really wanting to understand what Christianity is about, the best thing for you to do is to begin to read the Bible on your own. In fact, we're starting another class, not to just talk about our programs here, but we are starting another class pretty soon called Christianity Explored. It's a six-week class where we go through the Gospel of Mark. We survey it. And the whole point of the class is to ask, what does the Bible really say? 
about Jesus, about who Jesus is. And it's designed for people that are skeptical or that have doubts or that aren't sure. And so if that's where you are, man, we'd love for you to come to that class. I love teaching that class. It's one of my favorite things. We're not going to make you do anything weird or creepy or awkward. You're not going to pray out loud or any of that stuff. We try hard and make it not churchy. But we want you to come and just actually look at what the Bible really says and bring your questions and talk together. If you have someone in your life, Christians, that you think might be interested, bring them to that class. The point, again, is that you've got to know your Bibles if you're going to bear witness. I mean, think about John. Remember all these references to the Old Testament we're seeing here? And I'm giving you like 10% of them, guys. He didn't have to like pull up his iPhone and go look at his online concordance. Like he just knew the Old Testament. It was something that had mastered him. He hadn't mastered it. It had mastered him. It just came out. It was part of the warp and woof of his his being. That's what we are supposed to be doing. That's what we are called to practically if we're going to bear faithful and effective witness in the world. And then secondly, let me also add to that, that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God empowers the ministry of his word. What do I mean by that? That's very churchy, preachy language, I know. But here's what I mean. The reading and the teaching and the preaching of the Bible is powerful. Meditation on the Bible is powerful. That's part of why we're doing what we're doing at this particular church. We're committed to the centrality of the reading and preaching and teaching of the Bible in our life together. We're not just doing this because this is what people have always done. In fact, it's not what people have always done. We're doing it because we believe in our very core, in our heart of hearts, that the way for people to experience the life-changing power of the gospel is through the proclamation of the gospel and that the Holy Spirit actually works through that message. He empowers that message. This week in my own Bible reading, I was reading through 2 Timothy, and I found this really cool part of of 2 Timothy in chapter 2. Paul is writing to his protege, Timothy, and he's bound in a Roman prison. And he says, Timothy, I'm bound in prison, shackled like a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. That also reminds me of an old pastor that Marianne and I had in Waco. Um, used to always use the image regarding the Bible of a lion. He would say, the Bible is a lion. And all we are required to do in our own personal lives and also when we're gathered is uncage the lion. Listen, a lion does not need to be defended. A lion can take care of itself. All you need to do is let it out of its cage and it will do its ferocious work. That's what we believe about the Bible. Like the Holy Spirit of God right now empowers us, is at work in us as we're reading and thinking about and meditating on and preaching the Bible. That's why we preach the Bible, okay? I'm not trying to like be haughty or arrogant. I'm simply trying to say that the simple proclamation and study of the word of God is the way in which the spirit moves by and large. And it's the way in which we are called to bear witness in this world, okay? That's chapter 10. Now, second, chapter 11 tells us that we also bear witness by suffering, okay? Now, this chapter has a massive amount of symbolism that we just cannot get into in full detail. But just to get a basic understanding, let me walk you through a few of these verses. Verses 3 through 10 of chapter 11, what happens? Well, we see that God grants authority to two witnesses, we read, for a given amount of time, and he tells them, verse 3, to prophesy, And those numbers, by the way, 42 months 
1,260 days. Those are symbolic numbers. They're based on Daniel, another Old Testament prophet, chapter 7 and chapter 9. And they represent the full era between the first and second coming of Jesus. So this isn't a literal 1,260 days before, after Christians are raptured, before Jesus comes back. That's not the best way to read this. Again, if you want to talk more about that, come talk to me. I'm happy to have that discussion with you. So the two witnesses speak powerfully about God's kingdom. They proclaim the kingdom of God. They speak judgment against evil. They speak hope and life for those who turn to Jesus in faith. And look, especially in verse 6, we see, again, Old Testament themes here. John here is alluding to the prophets Elijah and Moses. Remember in 1 Kings 17 through 19, Elijah shuts the sky so that it doesn't rain for three years. And that's what we were seeing a reference there to in verse 6. These two witnesses have the power to shut the sky. And then that phrase, they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague is a reference to the ministry of Moses in Exodus from the Old Testament. So again, John is remixing these Old Testament images and people and metaphors to describe the ministry of these two witnesses. And then verse 7, for the first time in Revelation, we see mention of a beast, That's not a good guy. It's a bad guy. He comes out of the bottomless pit, verse 7, and makes war on the witnesses and kills them. And then they lie dead in the street for three and a half days, and then God raises them up again. They go to heaven, verse 12, and then the seventh trumpet sounds, which is a sign of the return of Jesus. Jesus comes and executes final judgment and makes all things new. So that's what happens. Okay, so real quick, two interpretive questions and then application. So stick with me. Question one, who are the two witnesses? Now, if you read ten commentaries, it'll probably be like seven to three. Uh, The question, are these two actual literal people who are going to appear on the world stage at some point in history? Or who might have already appeared? There's debate about that as well. Or are are these two people, these two witnesses, symbols, symbolic? Uh, It's hard to know, to be honest. I think you can make good arguments either way. Um, it's possible that they're symbolic because in verse 4, they're referred to as two olive trees and two lampstands. That seems to imply that the two witnesses are symbols of what the church is supposed to do. But either way, if you think there are two actual people that are going to show up at some point or if they're just symbolic, the point is still the same. The main idea is this. The two witnesses represent the calling of the whole church in this world, okay? Um, The church is to do what the witnesses do here. Uh, All followers of Jesus, that is, are to bear witness by speaking and by suffering for his name's sake. Second, when will this happen? That's the second interpretive question. And here's my answer. (laughs) This is gonna happen throughout the time between Jesus' first and second coming. It happens now all over the world, all the time. And it will intensify as we draw nearer to the end. I actually do think that verses 7 through 12 or so refer to the future. And that's because verse 7, John says, when they have finished their testimony. Do you see that there? When they have finished their testimony, that is when the church has done its work of prophetic ministry, there will be a time where the church is pretty much made extinct. I do think that probably refers to a future time that we have not yet reached, but it's hard to know. The point for us now, though, is that this is relevant. Here's why it's relevant. 
the church will bear witness in the world about who God is and about what the gospel is, and listen, the church will suffer for it. There's always going to be hostility towards the people of God. The world will always try to harm the church. Now, here's something to get about Revelation. This world is a very complex world. This world, in many ways, is not black and white. There's a lot of gray in the world. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of complexity. But one thing that Revelation is doing is getting us underneath all of the gray. It's getting us underneath all of the complexity. It's getting us underneath all the confusion and showing us that at its root, there is a struggle in this world that is taking place right now on the world stage between the forces of the evil one and the forces of God and his son, Jesus Christ. It's a spiritual battle. We talked about this a little bit last week. The beast, the evil one, the dragon oppose the forces of Jesus and his gospel. And that war is always raging on until Jesus returns. So that's the best way, I think, to interpret Revelation 11. And here's what it means for you. There is going to be suffering for you in this life. People that have been around for a while know that I typically say, welcome to Christ Church at that point. We're glad you're here. You're going to suffer. <laughs> um, there is going to be opposition for you in this life. Uh, if you're a Christian, you are going to undergo threats and turmoil and torment. The Bible is exceptionally clear on this. Um, let me just read you a couple of verses. Jesus in John says this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. The Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians, says about his own ministry, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. He says elsewhere to Timothy, very forthrightly, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, that is all Christians, will be persecuted. Peter First Peter 4, beloved, do not be surprised, he says, at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings. You are going to suffer. You're going to suffer in this life. And yet amazingly, the picture of Revelation is that suffering is one of the ways in which we bear witness to the truth of Christianity. Suffering encompasses a wide range of things. For some, <clears throat> then and now, suffering for the sake of Jesus means imprisonment and torture and perhaps even death. I've got a, uh, not a friend of mine, but I, I've heard a story of a, one of our Acts 29 pastors who's been planting a church in Pakistan a couple of years ago. Pakistan is a place that's very hostile to Christianity. A couple of years ago, this man was arrested. I don't, I don't remember all the details, but he was arrested on some trumped-up charge and uh, because he was proclaiming the gospel and gathering a congregation in a small village in Pakistan and taken before the authorities, and he got a good lawyer, and the attorney got him off. The authorities let him go. They declared him not guilty, and as he was coming out after the trial had ended on the steps of the courtroom, a group of men in a car drove by, rolled down the window, pulled out their automatic rifles, and shot him dead. And it's very likely that the whole thing was a setup, that the court was, in fact, complicit in this man's murder. 
all because he proclaims the name of Jesus. Some will suffer through death because they're bearing witness to the truth of the gospel. Do you get that? That happens today, all over the place, in the world. But for most of us, that will not be the way in which we suffer. Um, For some of you, for some of you, your suffering means that your family is going to reject you. Um, You know, you've become a Christian, and you're known as the weird Christian who's a buzzkill, and it's going to be hard. For some of you, um, so suffering is, uh, it, it means that, you know, perhaps a romantic relationship that you are involved in or have been involved in has to end. And it really stinks and it's really painful because you're trying to follow Jesus. You know, um, you're trying to obey Jesus. You're trying to do what Jesus calls us to do by his help and your significant other isn't. And you realize that it's not going to work out because you're not going in the same direction and you have to end it. That's painful. That's hard. That's suffering. And for, for others of us, you might be struggling with something that you are afraid to even mention. So let me just mention it. Some of us struggle as trying to follow Jesus with things like same-sex attraction. And we feel like we can never act out on our deepest desires and wants. We feel shackled. We feel that if we're going to follow Jesus, it's going to mean that we're committed to perhaps a life of celibacy. And that's hard. That's a form of suffering in this world. Some of us feel alone. Some of us feel abandoned. Some of us feel like no one understands. For others of you, it might mean that you're trying to to get ahead at work, but someone else who you work with gets the job you should have gotten or gets the promotion that you should have gotten because he or she cheated and cut corners when you were committed to doing it the right way. And so you're stuck in the same position that doesn't pay as well, that's not as helpful, that's not as good, and you hate your job. And people that are cheating are getting promoted over you. That's suffering. And some of you are undergoing that right now. For some of you, suffering means dealing with tragic loss in your life. You've lost a child or children. You've lost a spouse. And you know that you're going to have to bear that grief the rest of your life. For some of us, suffering means resisting sin and temptation while friends that we have that aren't disciples of Jesus engage in what we think is sin and temptation and love it. And they're having a blast. And we don't get to go have a blast. We don't get to do things that look really enjoyable because we want to follow Christ. That's suffering. That stinks. It's hard. We're all going to suffer. For some of us, suffering simply means that we have friends all around, we have relationships all around, but we don't really feel like anyone understands us. And we are surrounded by people all the time, and yet we feel as if we're walking through life alone. Have you feel any of these ways? Have any of you experienced any of these things? Listen, That's what it means to follow Jesus. And and hear this. God uses that suffering in your life to convince people of the believability and the beauty of his gospel and his kingdom. Now, we're not supposed to seek suffering out, but Paul says in Philippians 3 that Christians share in Jesus' own suffering so that we become like him in his death. Listen, we bear witness to the world about the truth and the glory of God's kingdom by enduring suffering. We bear witness to the truth 
that we will attain the resurrection of the dead, that God will raise us up in the last day, that one day every tear will be wiped away from our eyes. We bear witness by suffering because in enduring suffering, you and me are proclaiming that we believe in a better world and in a better God and that Jesus himself is better. That Jesus is worth it. That the spirit of God actually empowers our suffering so that other people will more and more begin to see and believe the same. Whatever you're going through in your life that's hard and bad and stinky, and you're asking God every day in prayer to take it away, and he's not doing it, listen, maybe, and I don't, I'm not the prophet or the son of a prophet, but maybe he's taking it away, or excuse me, maybe he's not taking it away, because right now, he wants you to dig in and invest in that part of your calling as his disciple to endure suffering so that others might see the reality and the beauty and the glory of the world that is yet to come that you and I are hoping in and waiting for. That's what these two witnesses were all about. And that's what our witness is also all about. You know, I mentioned at the outset that the early fathers, the early church Christians faced suffering very well. And one of my favorite early church fathers is um, a guy named Polycarp. He was actually the pastor of the church in Smyrna in the middle of the second century. And it's possible that he actually knew John, the guy that wrote Revelation. And uh, Polycarp died late in life as a martyr. He was burned to death at the stake by the Roman state because he was a Christian. And one thing that has been passed down to us through the record of history is what he said at his death when the authorities were asking him to recant. That is to say, never mind, I don't believe in Jesus, I'm not one of his followers, Caesar is God. Instead of recanting, here's what Polycarp said. Eighty and six years have I served Christ, nor has he ever done me any harm. How then could I blaspheme my king who saved me? I bless thee for deigning me worthy of this day and this hour, that I may be among thy martyrs and drink the cup of my Lord Jesus Christ. Suffering is suffering, but suffering is also purposeful. Part of its purpose is so that you might let the nations know that God is good, that a new world is coming, and that following Jesus is infinitely worthwhile. Let's pray.